Hey friends, welcome to episode 165 of Coming Up Next, the podcast, my interview with actor Simon Maiden. But before we get to the interview, don't forget, you can support the show by subscribing, by rating and reviewing the show, which you can do at www.comingupnext.com.au. It's not going to cost you anything, it's maybe just a little bit of your time, and I'll keep bringing you this show for free each and every week. Now, let's get to it. podcast time friends welcome to another episode of coming up next the podcast uh first of all thank you to my previous guest uh john patrick shanley for coming on the show john is one of the most legendary contemporary playwrights uh if not playwrights of all time uh he's an oscar-winning screenwriter as well um and just a, a very insightful uh human being so if you haven't listened to that one uh, you've had two weeks. What are you doing? Uh, sorry for the delay in release again. Last week, uh, I woke up um, on uh, on Tuesday, which was a day that I was scheduled to fly from uh, from Melbourne to London, uh, and also uh, cut my podcast because I like to leave that to the last minute. Uh, and the display on my laptop was cactus. So. Thanks, Apple, for providing me with a display that would only last a couple of years. But um, I didn't really have time to get it fixed. I, I, uh, I did make an attempt, but um, unfortunately, it meant that this podcast was not to be edited for last week. Um, so minor technical hiccup. If you missed the dulcet tones, you could have found them at comingupnext.com.au where there's also links to subscribe to the show and uh, do all the other things that I'm constantly imper in, uh, encouraging you, the good listener, to do. Simon Maiden is, uh, is an actor that you will most certainly be familiar with if you've been watching any Australian television for the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, I first met Simon, uh, he acted in a, um, in a short film that I made when I was at film school called Shotgun, um, which you can find online in various uh, places. But uh, Simon has, you know, his list of credits includes all of the big shows, um, All Saints, Rush, Neighbours, Tangle, Dr. Blake, Underbelly, Satisfaction. Uh, he played a young Winston Churchill in Deadline Gallipoli. Um, and most recently, you won't be seeing him, but you can hear him in, uh, in Lee Winnell's new film, Upgrade, um, which is available for your consumption on, uh, on the various on-demand platforms. Uh, I would suggest iTunes if you are an Apple user. Make sure you have a display that's working correctly. Uh, we get into all the usual ramblings. So it was great to just uh, sit down and catch up. Uh, so here it is, episode 165 of Coming Up Next with Simon Maiden. It seemed to pop up in my... Twitter feeds and, uh, and news feeds that there was this film coming out uh, or doing a festival circuit 
sort of towards the start of the year uh, called Upgrade. And then the next thing I knew, I saw that your name was uh, linked to this film from this, you know, quite prolific uh, Australian, just call him a horror or thriller director. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't really know Saul, how to categorize Saul was him. definitely horror, you'd yeah. have to say, you know. Yeah. Insidious probably is as well. Yeah. But Upgrade's not. No, it's, um, well, it's a, it's a sci-fi thriller set in the near future but with these wonderful sort of throwbacks to things like Robocop and Terminator that I mean Lee and I are similar ages and um, Logan Marshall Green who played Grey were all about the same age and they were all the films that we were talking about the whole time and it was great um, because well in case anyone doesn't know I don't actually appear on screen I'm the voice of um, an AI component known as STEM and it brought up a whole lot of new challenges for for me acting wise. Yeah, I yeah. bet. I've never had a problem learning lines. It's just I'm I'm very fortunate. I learn lines quite quickly. With this one though, because I hadn't sort of connected it to to anything physical or you know, if you're playing a bunch of ones and zeros, then what's what's your emotional <laughs> kind of <laughs> driving force for it? Yeah. So anytime that you know they sort of they ring the bell and say turnover, I I initially i would panic i'd be reaching for the sides so that i could you know make sure that i knew yeah i know the one i know the lines i know the lines you know and always just off offset as well because you know so that logan could hear me but you know you don't want a voice so close to him that he's turning his head every time i speak so yeah it was um it was it was interesting that would have been a very interesting process and that was shot in melbourne wasn't it yeah yeah we shot it down at the dockland studios and um and on location around here for it was a five million dollar five million US was the budget. Okay. Uh, which from what I've what I know is Blumhouse Pictures who produced it, that's their kind of business model. Yeah. They say, here's five million dollars, go and make whatever film you want. We we love the script, we trust in you, but don't ask us for a penny more. Right. Because <laughs> none will be forthcoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean it's been very successful for them. And you think, you know, Get Out was from them. It was a similar thing, you know, five million. God, I don't know what it's, what it's crashed through at the box office now, but it's uh, it's up in the hundreds. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, it's it's an interesting model. I suppose it's almost a throwback to what. Well, I guess we don't really talk about Miramax, but <laughs> what the what was kind of going on around you know early nineties in that sort of time and space. Yeah. Although there's probably the funds were probably a little bit more or a little bit less limited then. Yeah, well, I think Bumhouse have made their name as you know, kind of genre picks, you know, very much horror and slasher and mm. all the rest of it. And little by little, they're moving into sort of a grand affair, yeah. artistic perhaps, you know, in, in a lot of ways. It's interesting that you talk about the process because, you know, one of the things that I was keen to, to speak with you about was not only the difference in process with working on something like, like Upgrade where, you know, you, the challenges that are presented to someone doing voice acting as opposed to physical acting mm. but you know you've had this career where you've kind of uh moved between well you've been on basically every australian television show that's been available <laughs> to you um and you've worked on small australian films and bigger american films mm. as well as you know telemovies and kind of across the spectrum you've 
I guess in, dabbled in all areas of uh, of acting as well as having gone to one of the most prestigious schools mm. in Australia. So I suppose, how have you found the uh, that you have evolved as a as a performer through that kind of process? Uh, it's probably not really a conscious evolution, but what's the difference that you found? in terms of how you were prepping when you would begin and what your process would be to where you've kind of landed now? As in beginning of career? Yeah. Wow. Um, well, it's 20 years this year since I started studying at WAPA, which is enough to make you kind of sit back and go, wow, okay, okay. <laughs> this is, this, I've been at this a while now. Yeah. Um, and you grew up in Ballarat as well, didn't you? I did, yeah. I grew up in Ballarat. Um, my, my parents met doing uh, an amateur theatre production um, and were engaged shortly thereafter. Um, so I've always sort of, I've grown up around the theatre, uh, my sister as well, my younger sister. Um, and I was just one of those precocious kids who, you know, at the age of five or six was wanting to run lines with mum and dad and whatever play they were doing, you know. I remember going to see Dad in a rehearsal for A Man for All Seasons and he was playing The Executioner and I saw Dad walk on stage and then pull out this massive axe and I was just, why is he doing, is that Dad or is that The Executioner kind of thing? I was yeah. just, I was, that, I was hooked from, from that moment. Right. Um, what was your first experience of uh, performing or was it, I'm assuming it was for your parents? <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, um, there was always... You know, a piano in the house. It was always guitars, so there was lots of stuff like that. I was always singing. Very, very fortunate that um, music came very naturally to me. And I mean, the first proper production that I did was um, as Kurt von Trapp in The Sound of Music for the Ballarat Begonia Festival in about <laughs> 1980-something. Um, and it just, it just went from there, you know. Lots of lots of amateur theatre productions, lots of productions at school. My dad um, was in charge of directing the school musicals, and he also is known pathologically for um, getting bored very quickly. So he didn't want to just recycle the same sort of shows that you'd seen a hundred times. So you know, we were doing shows like Cabaret, Little Shop of Horrors, oh, wow. you know, um, Barnum, yeah. you know, challenging stuff. Um, and all the way through high school, I think there were. I think I knew in the back of my mind that that was where I was going to head. Um, and obviously, your parents were would have been supportive of that choice. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think they realised by the time I'd sort of you know finished high school and uh, I'd moved to Melbourne to start uh, a course in information management at the University of Melbourne. Right. And at the same time, I was commuting back to Ballarat every night to do a production of Les Misérables. Okay. Um, so you know, sort of get up, crack a dawn, go to lectures, not knowing really what the course was all about. Couldn't wait to get back in the car and get back. You know, after three weeks, I sort of <laughs> realised and turned to Dad and said, about that first semester tuition, really sorry, but I don't <laughs> think I'm going to be following through on this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just I bummed around for a, for a few years, you know, part-time jobs and played in bands and... Eventually, a very good friend of mine um, decided on on a whim that he was going to audition for NIDA and got in. And that kind of kicked me in, in the bum a bit to think, you know what? 
you know, all those thoughts that I'd had about, oh, I'm not going to go and study. They'll, you know, they'll just they'll train all the originality out of you. Just realise that's just foolish talk, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, just a bit of laziness. Yeah, completely. Yeah, um, and I was very fortunate. I, um, I I went off to Perth and um, studied with some great people, great teachers, wonderful, you know, made wonderful lifelong friends, and yeah, from there we sort of graduated, moved to Sydney, and. I've been fortunate. I've kind of worked steadily without ever really sort of becoming a household name or having the, you know, the lead role or the star turn too much. But I've managed to, I think for the last 19, 20 years, put, you know, actor or voiceover artist on my tax form each year, yeah, yeah. which is, <laughs> which is, you know, it doesn't happen for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, the, the numbers that drop off from drama school there's probably there's less of us who are still doing it from my class than there are you know not <laughs> mm. yeah well, I mean it's the same from like going to film school you yeah. know you, there's a certain amount that uh, certain distance that I think talent alone gets you and then the rest of it is just hard work and uh, tenacity and dumb luck dumb, <laughs> yeah and, and being in the right place at the right time yeah yeah, oh, it absolutely is um I, I remember I I was auditioning for <clears throat> Deadline Gallipoli for one of the soldier roles. Um, I read the script. It was one of these characters who was known as um, the Ballarat Boys, who were you know, these four four guys from Ballarat who all went off to war together. And so I sort of, sort of cheekily, you know, in my auditions, was saying like, "By the way, born and raised in Ballarat, that's got to count for something." Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of, I was I'd auditioned. I was happy with it, and then apparently they were struggling to find someone to play a young Winston Churchill and one of the producers was watching the tapes pressed pause as another one came in and the, I think it was it might have even been Jacqueline Persky who was one of the writers and producers and she just sort of saw my face on the screen and went he could play Churchill and sort of pulled up a photo of the young Churchill next to me and, and went yeah and you know, that's just <laughs> it's dumb luck you know? yeah. <laughs> wow that's like millimetre millimetre perfect timing. yeah exactly yeah, thankfully they hadn't paused on you and Leslie's face or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, was there were there any teachers at uh, at Whopper that you kind of specifically connected with who had a particular ethos or um, or philosophy that you know you still f- have in the back of your mind when you go to an audition or a job? Uh, well, Chris Edmund is, is a dear dear friend. Um, and he was a wonderful acting teacher and he was in charge, I think he was the head of directing when I was there. Uh, and he only directed us in one show in the entire three years that we were there, uh, which was the production of Hamlet. And, but his sort of, his attitude and, and philosophy, you know, there's, there's a good deal of kind of um, English grit in him, which is, you know, get down, get in the trenches and get your hands dirty and do it. You know, we <laughs> we were doing a tech rehearsal of Hamlet with you and Leslie playing Hamlet and I was playing the ghost and we were both pissing about a bit and, you know, from the back of the theatre, this voice just went, act better! <laughs> Simple note, but, you know, <laughs> it was kind of like, actually, maybe we should. Let's, yeah. let's try doing that. Let's yeah, try yeah. putting our big boy pants on and you know, actually doing what we're here to do. Right. Yeah. Um, I like that. You know, I like the the practical nature of stuff like that. Well, I think you go to places like that, hopefully to get your ass kicked, even if you don't realize it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you do, you know, there were, 
areas that I was not comfortable in. You know, every movement class, yeah, I've got two left feet. Yeah. Um, but it was just not an area that I'd ever explored and hadn't realised how much it can tie into everything, the holistic nature of performance, um, particularly on, you know, on stage. And I think also uh, having that kind of education even if it's not like a, of direct benefit, so you may never use those movement skills again, but becoming comfortable in a situation where you're uncomfortable mm. helps you. I mean, like like you, we said at the top with, uh, with the upgrade, mm. you know, you felt uncomfortable in that, but there was probably a certain level at which you could philosophically move through that because you've been in uncomfortable situations before and hadn't died. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. You know, you've... you've after 20 years of doing it, you sort of, you've become equipped with the tools to be able to deal with things on the spur of a moment. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got to be ready for anything when you're, when you're in, particularly in acting. Because mm. you never know what, you know, what opportunities are going to come up more than anything. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talk about things being dumb luck, but there's a certain level at which you're putting yourself in the position to be exposed to dumb luck as well. Yeah. That's, that's very true. I mean, that's the very nature of doing it. I mean, it's a foolish profession to get into <laughs> when you consider that you walk into a room to audition for a part. You very, very rarely get any feedback whatsoever apart from, thanks, yeah, yeah, it's nice to see you, good on you. And there's a yawning chasm between walking out of the room and getting the phone call saying, you know, usually saying no, They've gone in a different direction. Or yes, hooray. But that gulf of just not knowing what what is going into the decision making process can be can be quite painful to negotiate. Yeah. Um, How do you reconcile that? I've come to um, to approach auditions and things differently in the last couple of years. I read um, Brian Cranston's autobiography and he had this fantastic approach which was that you're not going in to audition for a job you're going to, into an audition to do your job which is if you're an actor then you just you know you want to perform you want to you want to you want to act so that's an opportunity to do that and then when you walk out of the door tear up the script throw it away and don't think about it again job you've done. done your job yeah if you get a chance to do that particular job again and on a larger scale, fantastic. If not, I mean, it's it's easy in principle. It's taken me a, a good couple of years to be able to really kind of trust that I'm that I am approaching it like that. But it has made things a hell of a lot easier. I guess it takes the pressure off the need for an outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't. Yeah, I I just. I guess it's you know the luxury of being a bit older as well now you know you kind of I don't feel like I'm holding on to the, the grim death that this is going to be the this is the one that'll change everything <laughs> this is going to top a most of the pop a most with this it's just not about that you know it's about getting to enjoy doing the work with good people usually you know um, there's nothing else that I'd rather do though <laughs> so what was your uh, what was your MO, I suppose, when you did finish Whopper and you came out? What was it that you were holding on to or that you were... What was the, the kind of long-shot objective? 
Uh, well, to work with Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> You've beaten me to that one. <laughs> um, you know, I had I had grand plans, but when I graduated, it wasn't as commonplace as it certainly is now. I mean, the big question when we were in Perth was, are you going to base yourself in Melbourne or are you going to base yourself in Sydney? Right. The thought of moving to LA was just anathema. Heath Ledger did that. But he's Heath Ledger and he's amazing and beautiful and and you know all the rest of it but you know there weren't too many others you know russell crowe and guy pierce and you know, naomi watts perhaps but the thought of doing it as just you know that that's the choice we'll go and crack the la market never gonna happen <laughs> never occurred never occurred to me you know yeah american movies came out to australia every now and then to shoot and you know you, if you were fortunate you'd get to work on it and maybe have stars in your eye and go, this will be the one, this will catapult me, they'll, they'll, they'll recognise me playing Father McPherson with all four lines that I've yeah. got. And <laughs> John Dahl will cast me in everything that he does from now on because that's, that's the way the stars are aligning. Can't you just see it? <laughs> mm. um, but I guess the, the realistic MO for me was that I just wanted to work. I wanted to you know, work on Australian stories. I didn't care if it was theatre or music theatre or film or television. Um, you know, you're young, you're hungry, you're in the workforce as a professional actor for the first time, really, and you're just, you're just hungry. So, you know, there were lots of kind of independent theatre productions and things like that up in Sydney before I moved back to Melbourne. There's been lots of independent theatre productions down here as well. Um, you know, if the story's great, and why not? <laughs> it means that you're acting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess if that's the kind of philosophical... Um approach that you take then that's you know that's always going to be satiating your desire or your thirst for to perform yeah and that's not to say that you don't i mean it's it's impossible not to with the the incredibly talented bunch of friends that i have to sometimes look at them and their opportunities and their you know, their career trajectories and go why them and not me mm. how come why didn't i get to audition for that role that would have I could have oh, ooh, you know and you wonder and you you question and all the rest of it but everyone's path is different yeah you know and you know I'm, I'm very very fortunate you know I, I do quite a lot of voiceover work these days as well and that that really pays the bills um, and then the acting work as it comes about you know it's a small industry in Australia um, so there's not always going to be a hell of a lot of opportunities. Mm. So when they do come along, you just I, I approach it with going, well, you <laughs> grab them with both hands. You know? mm. And I guess having um, uh, well, being able to do voiceover as well in your back pocket is a great tool for versatility as well as probably being something that you enjoy doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, and I do all sorts of voiceovers. I um, voice a couple of sports shows that get, sold overseas each week you know, one about soccer and one that's a wrap-up of that's world cool. sport and all that sort of thing yeah, yeah. I'm not being a soccer fan i now know more <laughs> about international football than, than i ever thought i could possibly know right yeah i went to the uh, champions league final in uh, kiev did you really i did i'm a big liverpool supporter right yeah it was pretty uh that it was of... it was the most exciting disappointment of my life <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're off to a good start this this season. They are off to a very good yeah. start. Good manager, good team. Jurgen Klopp. He, yeah. you know, 
and now we're getting completely uh, off track. Off track, Doesn't but um, I had this moment where I thought, because you know, having been following them for twenty years, there's obviously ups and downs as there is supporting any football. Hey, or I bear sport it for, I bear for Carlton in the AFL, mate. I know all that. That's only really down for the <laughs> yeah. last twenty years. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I had this moment of realization. I think it was towards the end of last season where I thought. There's no one else in the world of football that I would rather have at Liverpool than Jurgen Klopp. Wow. Um, because of the way that he's just he's just significantly changed the culture of the entire team. It's not only that he's brought a better style of play or, or mm. attracted better players. From kind of the inside out, he's really changed everything, the, the entire culture of the team. And it's with a long-term vision to mm. sustain success. It's not like with... Uh, like I guess a Manchester City or a Manchester United or PSG where you know they're like just throw as much money as possible mm. at the wall yeah and hope that it sticks in the short term and we'll fix it in the long term as well oh, good managers everything isn't it oh, yeah coach you know absolutely and I and I take I, I used to actually get very inspired Liverpool had a manager about um, 10 10 years ago named Rafa Benitez mm -hmm. And I used to just read everything that he said because I was like, it was so, I always saw my role in like a production as being similar to a football manager's role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as either a director or a producer. And the philosophy, I just read so much about their philosophies because it's so similar. Um, and, I, and I took a lot of inspiration from those. And then you just have years where there's bad managers there and it just rots mm. the club. That's fascinating. That's a, it's a, that's a really good very 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 good sports analogy to to bring it back to to career yeah um <laughs> I, I told one of my mates that i was that i was going to be um, interviewed by you for this podcast mm. he said why is he interviewing you <laughs> I don't know. thanks first of all but i don't know like the the life of a journeyman actor and he was like oh you are a bit like a journeyman aren't you yeah. like farron ray for st kilda <laughs> It's like, again, thanks, but no thanks. You know, maybe like Cade Simpson, you know, the veteran defender playing off the half-back flank and setting up all the stars up ahead. You know, mm. maybe, that's, maybe that's a nicer way to look at it, I think. Um, yeah. I think there are a lot of similarities. Someone actually, I was having dinner with a family friend last night who is, he's a lawyer. And, um, you know, there's kind of, there's a lot of mystery for people who don't work inside film about what, certain roles are a lot of people don't understand necessarily the difference between a director and a producer mm. and i said to him the director's kind of like the captain of the team and the producer's the manager that was the that was kind of the but then it, there were kind of holes in that yeah. theory but that was the most kind of logical <laughs> so what does that make the first ad then first ad is the physio <laughs> <laughs> Running onto the field when someone gets injured. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. 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 But I mean, yeah, it's not a great analogy because the director's not like really on the field playing necessarily. But anyway. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, sports and creative aligning is the point. Exactly. And I, mean, I like Liverpool. <laughs> and Jurgen Klopp. And Jurgen Klopp. Um, so what was the first gig that you got when you finished, when you came out of Whopper and you'd settled in Sydney? Uh, that was Changi, a six-part miniseries um, that was written by John Doyle from Roy and HG mm -hmm. about um, prisoners of war in the, the Changi 
prison camps and every young actor was auditioning for it. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah, there were scripts <laughs> flying around everywhere and going, who are you going to go in for? Who are you going in for? Who are you going in for? Oh, really? Oh, you're up for that. I'm up for that as well. Yeah. Was this like 2005? 2001. 2001, okay. Yeah, because we finished, we graduated in 2000. Uh, and I, you know, I had recall auditions for, for there was six main characters, six POWs, and each episode was told from the perspective of them being in the camp and mm-hmm. their point of view of it, and then as an old man. So you also had these giants of kind of um, Australian TV and entertainment, really, you know, Bud Tingwell and all sorts of people. Yeah, wow. Um, and I had a recall for a couple of the parts and got really close and then didn't land it, and I was desperately disappointed. And I was like, well... Yes, this is what I'm going to have to start getting used to. Um, but then got um, got a call saying that they wanted to offer me the part of the grandson of one of one of the characters in the present day. So I was I was Steve Stephen Curry's grandson, right? Who I think was played by Bill Kerr, I think. But um, I remember you know, we got to have a little bit of an audition, uh, a bit of rehearsal, and Nadine Garner came in as my to play my girlfriend. And I just I couldn't believe it. She because she's you know like proper professional actor. I grew up watching the Henderson Kids and all the rest of it, and she couldn't have been nicer. Because mm. uh, I just I was very upfront with them. And just said you know like this is my first gig, so apologies if I don't know <laughs> what the hell I'm doing. Yeah, and and Nadine was wonderful. Kate Woods, who's directed it, who directed it, was wonderful as well. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. Was there was there a level of anxiety and nervousness going into it? Oh, first day setting foot on the set. God, yes. You know, just even just in terms of getting there. You know, how do I make it to the studio on time? Where do where what do who do I speak to? You know, because there's a way in which a, a set works. You know, and and you know, nowadays, you know, head head towards the catering. You'll find someone who can put you in touch with whoever you need to be. But I just had no idea. You know, wandering around the studios of ABC in Sydney. Mm. Um, okay. <laughs> I know I've got a line about a tomato sandwich here somewhere, but it's about <laughs> as much as I can <laughs> really do at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was great. I loved it as well. You know, it's very, it's so different to theatre, but which had been the focus of three years of training at, at WAPA. Um, we did a, a couple of short films in our third year, but being on set with all the cameras and all the people and just seeing how much of a team sport it is. Mm. Was was a real eye opener and one that I just couldn't wait to to just do again. Yeah. yeah. So I guess from you know from doing that through to something like Deadline Gallipoli, in terms of the work that you were doing. Well, Deadline Gallipoli, I guess, was a mini series more than a TV ser- serial series. Mm. But you know, f- throughout that, you know, like I said before, you you'd done most shows that were available to be done like you said a journeyman kind of actor how did you feel as though i guess your comfortability and your technique and the way that you would approach things has has uh shifted over that 15 or it's probably 18 years yeah um i guess on camera i'm still learning just less is more the face tells a whole lot more than you than you can even imagine you know and i often find myself watching you know, the the great film actors and just going they're not doing anything but they're telling me everything and it's such a subtle thing you know so I guess yeah like I said I'm still always still learning 
you know, every time I'm on a set and you watch someone else, there's always something to, to learn and pick up and improve on. And, um, they, you know, I've, I guess in answer to your question, I, I do feel more comfortable on a set these, these days just because, but that's just familiarity. Mm. You know, you do something enough times and, you know, you, you learn how, how to do it. And also, I guess the, like, you know, the, the Australian industry is small enough that after a little while you probably start to be quite familiar with all the faces that you start seeing. Yeah. So there's not that kind of first day at school, Groundhog Day, every time you walk onto yeah. a new set. Yeah, which is which is very helpful as well because you can... I mean, I'm so goddamn terrible at remembering names though. I can remember faces. I can remember what we did and we, did we go out? We were on location, weren't we? But I can't remember your name for the life of me. I'm <laughs> so sorry, you know. But, it, you know, it's just... You're absolutely right, yeah. You know, there's... People, and and I think because the industry is so small in Australia, people work really, really hard to do their jobs well and to the absolute best of their ability because that's how you get employed again. Yeah. You know, doesn't matter if it's crew, cast, catering, unit, does not matter. Everyone is working so hard. I don't think a film like Upgrade could have been made on the budget that it had anywhere other than Australia. Because, you know, you, you, the, I think if it had been made in America, that they probably would have said, God, this budget is so restrictive, we can't do anything. Mm. But there was a real attitude on, on the set of just like, who cares what the budget is? This is what we've got. This is how we're going to make it look really fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it does, you know. It, you, you wouldn't know to, to watch that on the big screen. I remember we went to South by Southwest for the premiere this year and saw a midnight screening with a cinema full of Lee Winnell fans who <laughs> wanted to love this film. Yeah. But the moment the picture came up, I was sitting next to Logan and my wife Zoe was on the other side and I kind of nudged them both and we went, fuck, this looks good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was so exciting. Doesn't look it? like a $5 million film that was made in... No. For, on location in Melbourne. No, it really, really doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, so yeah, and again, yeah, just it's it's humbling and it's inspiring when you see people just going the extra mile to mm. make sure that we're going to make the best thing that we can possibly make here. And I think that's, I mean, maybe that's just a general Australian approach to it. Yeah, apparently in Hollywood, a lot of Australians are known as very hard workers. Yeah, I mean, my <laughs> experience of working overseas has definitely been that Australians have a good reputation for being very hard working mm. kind of just say yes to anything kind of attitude yeah probably on occasion to to our detriment yeah no worries yeah I'll do that yeah. we don't need a safety coordinator do we no let's just shoot it great <laughs> yeah. so I mean one of the things that, that uh, is quite striking about your resume is it, it seems like you don't really have ego in the sense that you'll you will do work as long as it's good work it doesn't matter what the kind of size of the role is going to be whether it's one of the lead parts in upgrade or a smaller part in something else like dressmaker or mm. or um or other projects that you've worked on is that something that you feel like has made you more employable over the years and has kept that uh, sustainability in your career I haven't thought of it like that. I mean, you kind of, 
when you're in in the journeyman category, as I seem to have now and forevermore will be known as, um, <laughs> you kind of you know you audition for what you're given. Um, there's only been a couple of occasions where I've been actually just offered a role outright, and that's usually just been because of personal relationships. I worked for a good few years reading in auditions at Mulliner's and you'd just get to know the producers and the directors as they came through. And again, you know, it was just an opportunity to always kind of show off a bit in case there was a role. Mm. And on one occasion there was, they were, they were doing um, Tangle, terrific um, um, television show that lasted about three seasons here. Um, and there was a role in it for a character named Stavros. And he was about the only character who had popped up that was in my age bracket. And I just sort of thought, God, he's like the, you know, the assistant to Joel Tobek's minister in the, in the state parliament. And I just, I emailed my manager and said, look, I don't suppose there's any chance that they'd consider seeing me for, for that Stavros. I know that obviously I don't look like a Stavros. And they said, you're not going to believe it. We got an email this morning saying they're changing the name of the character to Stanley and they want to offer it to you. <laughs> and I was like, well, how about that? <laughs> That's fucking brilliant. I know. Yeah, it, was worth, it was worth asking the question, even though the answer was already there. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, that's one of the few times that that's, that's happened. But um, again, you put yourself in the position for that to happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know. And you were smart enough to know that there was, even if it was a 1% possibility, there was a possibility that something like that could happen. Yeah. And there's never any harm in asking. Yeah. As my grandmother always used to tell me. There's no harm in asking. <laughs> Um, so what's it been like to play some of these more like, you know, people who were based on actual people like, you know, you said before, young Winston Churchill and there's a few other real life people that yeah. you've portrayed. Senator Graham Richardson. That was yeah. good fun. Um, moving through the 70s and into the 80s um, and getting to work opposite you know, terrific people like Richard Roxburgh and you know, Felix Williamson, Paddy Bramall. Mm. Paddy Bramwell and I had a had a competition to see who could put on the most weight because I was playing Richo and he was playing <laughs> <Right>. Kim Beasley. <laughs> I think I won by about half a kilo. Right. Yeah, but he took it off a lot quicker than I did. <laughs> but it's wonderful, you know. I mean, I I, I love yeah you know, playing a real person. You know, playing Churchill, I I kind of knew a bit like everyone else, I guess the the picture of of him as prime minister much later in life. And hadn't known anything about his his life pre World War One or what an ambitious little fucker he was. <laughs> it was it was it was him who set off the whole Anzac Day debacle because he was career driven and said, "No, we can send them through there. Let's do it. Let's do it." Indeed, yeah. I need to get back to my my the, my correct station in life. You know, <laughs> um, so it was great. You know, because you get to you, know, you get to learn and research about that. You know, these people and mm. it's great fun I guess there's a lot to dig into as well especially with someone like Churchill or someone like Richardson yeah <laughs> of course um, yeah 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 there, there was there was all all manner of, of research and interesting things that you could turn up not that you know doing research like that actually probably appears on the screen but it's good to be informed mm. yeah yeah and so how did the role for Upgrade come about? Uh, an, an audition. Right. So it's just the same process as, uh, as anything else? Not, not quite the same. I, I went in and Nikki Barrett was casting and 
my agent had said, look, this is a really great script. Don't think of it as a voiceover. Okay. He sent it through and in big, bold black letters down at the bottom of the audition script, it said the producers reserve the right to recast whoever is used as the voice during production. I'm kind of like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm going to get to the, you know, the premiere and Morgan Freeman will be playing <laughs> STEM or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I went in for the audition and um, Lee had apparently instructed Nikki to uh, not to shoot faces. So the, she pointed the camera at my shoes and we did the lines. And then I did a second audition where Logan came in and we set up a partition between us. So the, you know, he, it was just a voice to him and a voice to me as well. And I don't know, maybe I, it was just, I, I was able to do it. And the recall audition with Logan, we also established a rapport really quickly because I sort of said to him, you know, is this your first time in Australia? He's like, no, man, no, no, I did my first film you know, up in Queensland. That wasn't a great raid, was it? I mean, yeah. I said, that was my first film as well. It's like, <laughs> ah, bang, you know. <laughs> we're off and racing, yeah. That's um, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we also established very early on with the relationship between Grey and, and, and Stem. You've, have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it yet, That's actually. right, because it gets released in the UK this week. Yeah. Actually, but it's out on out on digital and Blu-ray now in oh, Australia. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Um but we, we kind of wanted to set up this rapport very early on that it was like an 80s buddy cop movie between these guys. I won't give... I've got to be careful what I say so I don't give away spoilers <laughs> now. Um, the basic plot is Grey is an analogue guy in a digital world. Uh, there is a car accident where his wife is killed and he's uh, made quadriplegic. And... Uh, a computer genius along the kind of lines of Elon Musk comes forward and says, I have new technology, it's called STEM, this will be able to make you walk. But the little side effect that he didn't tell Gray about was that STEM could talk as well. And so it's just, and we worked really hard because um, it wasn't like a voiceover. I was on set every day so that we were interacting, which made all the difference. Because I think if you'd tried to make it, we without the voice there with the first day they're yelling wild yeah, lines exactly <laughs> i'm afraid i can't do that gray you know <laughs> um so it was it was a it was a big challenge it was a really good challenge um and again you know exercising a part of the brain and a part of the the approach that i probably hadn't before mm. um we talked extensively about but we didn't want it to sound like how from Um, 2001 we didn't want it to sound too much like Kit from Knight Rider I kept saying that you've cast me because I'm obviously the male Scarlett Johansson (laughs) and no one seemed to go along with that one unfortunately but but we worked really hard and (laughs) Lee gave me all sorts of weird stuff to listen to beforehand because he he kept talking about STEM as being a sociopath with that disconnect so he would gave me recordings of Jeffrey Dahmer interviews and you know, extreme metal music to listen to. And it's just, it, I don't know if it helped or not, but the Dahmer interviews were fascinating. <laughs> Hearing the way this guy spoke about, you know, killing and just, just so detached from it all. You know? Yeah. Well, what was Lee's process like coming into this kind of almost mm, action-y, revenge kind of yeah. genre piece? Um, 
he was very clear about the film that he was wanting to make and seeing the film up on the screen I there was only one scene that I think we shot that didn't end up up there so the script was pretty much locked and in place yeah that's tight yeah yeah and I guess that's also because you know the limitations of budget and length of shooting and all the rest of it um you know I didn't do a great deal of ADR for it either I think I had one three-hour session while I was in Vancouver one year yeah right I just would have assumed that you would have gone back and no no most of it we, we got on location um I mean there were there were concerns because you know as you moved around two different locations there's different acoustics and all that sort of thing and stem should probably have a pretty uniform tone and <laughs> and melody to him um so i think those were the bits that we may have may have just gone over or you know just on the day there was a noise in the background but the first day that i was on was well the first two days where, where they you would have seen in the um in the trailer the big fight sequence yeah that was so that was the way that we kicked things off i think that was day two of filming yeah right and it was amazing in this tiny little weatherboard <laughs> shitbox house and no one quite knew what these fight sequences were going to look like and i had a monitor and was kind of you know, sequestered off in a different room and could see it rather than on on the camera rather than what was happening in the room and i just I walked back out after one of, one of these takes and just went holy <laughs> what? what? All the crew are looking at me going, yeah. like, what? what? We didn't see anything. And I was like, you wait till you see it on the screen. This looks amazing. Yeah. No. Um, so they were very, very clever. Um, Stefan Dussio was um, the, the cinematographer. See the DP. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, That's a great gig. Yeah. But all that, all that fight stuff was just fascinating because they, they filmed it at 25 frames a second and Logan had a, an iPhone attached to his chest, which sent a signal to the camera rig, which operated on a 360 bevel. And so the camera moved him absolutely, mirrored him absolutely. You really? Know. Oh, wow, it's cool. really simple stuff, though, when you think about it. It's, yeah. and it's all being done in camera, which was amazing. There's so few, so little CGI stuff in there. Mm. Yeah. And again, it was just, it's so exciting to see it, would it all have, happening. Yeah, I could imagine it would be quite thrilling and then like almost inspiring, like you. It's kind of like everything's being elevated because everything's being elevated. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, it, even just, you know, sort of, you know, you'd have lunch and chat with Lee or chat with Logan. And, you know, Logan was in the middle of writing a script, which he's now directed. Um, you know, Lee is nothing if not prolific. The guy knows how to, you know, you know he blinks and a franchise comes out <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, that got me motivated as well to, you know, stop talking about ideas that I've got for scripts potentially and just to sit down and actually start writing, you mm. know, which is something that I do try and do with far more regularity. I could do it a bit more. But it's like I had an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson again and he said, you know, if you're a writer, you just got to get up and write now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what you're writing, you know, eventually something's going to come from it. Yeah. It's like the Jerry Seinfeld thing of not breaking the chain is like he's got a I think it's on his calendar he just writes an X for every day that he writes right and that's the chain you never break the chain how interesting that's yeah. great isn't it but I think you know when you when you do have or when you are immersed in those environments with those people who are prolific at what they do mm. it can only be inspiring if you let it be for, for people who are creative and then you just want to be working and collaborating in these environments because mm that's kind of the that's the goal i think 
for me anyway. Yeah. Not necessarily to be making whatever million dollar productions, but to be collaborating with and working with great creatives. Yeah, because it's the sum of the parts. Yeah, it's like if you're in a band, you know, the only music that can be produced by the, those four or five people in that room is the music that is produced at that moment with those people listening and interacting. You know, it's all it's all about making music and it's exactly the same on a set or in, in a theatre or, or wherever. And, you know, in general in life, you would hope that it was like that. I don't know. I've never really worked in an office. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've worked in a production office. Oh. But that's not really the same, I don't think. Uh, so were there any, like, aside from the, the challenges that we've spoken about in terms of it being a unique acting experience, mm-hmm. were there any uh, day-to-day or kind of week-to-week challenges that you or the crew faced in putting this together? Um, from a purely personal perspective, yeah, because initially Logan was going to wear, wear an earpiece, um, so that, and I would be well and truly offset and talking into a microphone that he could hear and that Lee could hear, and obviously the, you know, the sound guys. Um, but that quickly proved that it was just it wasn't going to be practical because it, it was always sort of straining and listening with one ear to to what was going on. Um, and we try like we tried a few different things, but in the end, the bulk of the stuff I was either sitting you know, directly below the camera lens. Um, unless it was moving, but just sitting just, just off, off set so that he could hear me clearly, we could interact. Um, so that, yeah, that, that was a challenge. I guess, you know, with anything that's got a limited budget, there was only one, there was only one night where I saw the, the, the temperature start to rise a little bit where <laughs> it was the, la- it's the last shot of the film. And Lee just said, I don't care if we're going over time. We need to have a last shot. We can get away with any multitude of sins if the last shot of your film looks good, you know. And pacing and muttering back and forth <laughs> with the uh, the producers and the line producers and everything like that. But in the end, you know, he got it and um, and we got it. It looks awesome. Mm. Um, but that was really the only time that I can remember things getting a little fraught. Right. Um, and perhaps one other one other night but I think that was just because it was sort of half past four in the morning and everyone was ready to go home so it was mostly night shoots was it a lot of night shoots um, a, lot, a lot of the location stuff in, in the middle of the film kind of takes place at night so um, there's a building down on um, on Johnson Street in Collingwood that we used for a bunch of different sets um, that was just unused yeah um, that was great it must have been like there must have been a kind of you must have gotten a kick from making this American action film in your hometown. Yeah, well, I mean, the only two American people on set were Logan and uh, and Betty Gabriel, both of whom were fantastic, and I'm now very grateful to call friends. Yeah, um, and you know, occasionally one of the producers, but all the crew, all the rest of the cast were Australian. Um, so yeah, it was a hell of a buzz. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, if, if just getting to you know muck about with an American accent, it's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're making movies like they do in LA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so from the time that it, uh, that's a rap was called to uh, South by Southwest, what was the 
what was that kind of period of time? About 12 months. Okay. Yeah, we shot it at the start of 2017. Was uh, it like a four-week shoot or something? It might have been five, possibly five, six. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been too long though. Just, again, because of budgetary stuff. But mm. I think it may have been five. Um, with a couple of weeks of pre as well. And again, you know, I sort of had no guarantee that I was going to be yeah, the voice the in the film. <laughs> and when we were shooting the film, it was called STEM rather than Upgrade. And I played STEM. So I was like, I'm, I'm like the title character. Yeah. If they don't replace me with someone. <laughs> and then we were, I was overseas and we were, um, they were about to do some, um, some test screenings. And uh, uh, yeah, I got a call from Lee saying, look, I need these lines. Where are you? I said, I'm in Vancouver. He said, do we know any students? Yep. Okay. Yeah, we'll get a studio set up in Vancouver <laughs> because I need these lines before this test screening. I was like, Ooh, okay, okay, okay. Breathe, mate. Breathe, breathe. <laughs> we'll get it done. No worries. No worries. Yeah. So I figured when, I, when, I, when they were getting me in to do the, for the test screening, there was pro- maybe my, you know, my percentage was, was on the rise a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> And then, yeah, they, I, I just, you know, I went in to do one final lot of ADR uh, earlier this year. Um, and my wife and I had a trip planned over to the States because she was having a, a photography exhibition in Chicago. And Lee kind of jokingly said down the line, oh, don't suppose you're going to be in the States in March, are you? And I went, funny you should mention that. <laughs> When's this screening? <laughs> yeah, we changed the flights and, and, and got along. Yeah. It was fantastic. Went to South by Southwest. South by Southwest. Because you were there this voice. year as well, weren't you? Yeah, I was yeah. there, I think about a week after you. I was there yeah. for the music part, um, working yeah, on we a to split pretty quickly. Dock. Right. Yeah, I'd never been before. It's pretty wild. It's a great town. Yeah. Good barbecue. Very good barbecue. <laughs> Delicious barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's nice. I, I'd, I'd love to go back and, and experience the... I mean, there was still music everywhere. You'd walk down seventh or whatever that that main street was and just all the bars all had bands yeah. in every window with the doors open it was like man this is what melbourne and sydney used to be like <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty wild like how it just kind of takes over the town and you, just, yeah. you can't go anywhere without hearing amazing music mm. whether it's to your taste or not it's you know the you, there's an appreciation for what it means to be in that city for that moment of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, yeah, that's where Richard Linklater's from. And um, yeah, there's a real creative buzz there for what is essentially a college town. Mm. You know, the the university is enormous. Just and the film festival there has almost taken Sundance's mantle as the the kind of indie. Yeah. As as Sundance is becoming more and more mainstream. Yeah, you, you, I would think so. Think I South think by so. is the you know really it's pretty mainstream now as well. I mean, not, not to say that the night the night after we had our premiere, Steven Spielberg was in town with Ready Player One. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's not that indie, is it? No, really? yeah, I guess not. <laughs> um, so I guess you know it, it must be cool now to like you said it's it's available on uh, digital download and, and Blu-ray in Australia, mm. and that that's like this kind of tangible thing that you have. And, you know, it's, you've got plenty of these experiences and, mm. and jobs that you've done over the years. But I guess I wonder, you know, we talked about what your MO was when you kind of got out of mm. um, drama school and how that's kind of shifted and moved now. What What's the kind of MO for success at the moment? 
oh, look, it's just, it's really in, in this country, I think it's just to, if you can be working fairly continuously, that's a pretty successful career um, without sort of, you know, hitting the, the, the big lights of, you know, kind of Hollywood and that sort of thing within Australia and without being a household name. If you can work consistently, then you know, as I've grown older, you start to realise that that's a pretty useful thing to have, and probably a pretty good barometer of of you know how people value your work. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I, I, I guess I guess that's the thing, and you know, I'm about to do a couple of episodes of Glitch for the ABC. Oh, great. Um, and then I'm doing Patrick a, Bramall. <laughs> yes. Patrick Bramble. Um, <laughs> no weight gain contests in this one, I assume? No, no, probably not. Probably not. Um, then I'm doing a play, a new Australian play with Red Stitch over in St Kilda for the end of the year, which is great. Um, it's a wonderful new new play called Lamb by Jane Bodie and with um, songs written by Mark Seymour. So I get to have a bit of a strum on the guitar and a sing as well, um, which is great. And then... Next year, or actually, I don't think I'm allowed to tell you what I'm doing next year. It hasn't, it hasn't, been, oh. an, it hasn't been announced yet. So well, then we'll have to come back for. We'll time. have to have to come back. Yeah, this time next year, and I can tell you all about it. Adventures of the journeyman continue. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Simon, for uh, for doing this uh, this little ramble, tangential retrospective on uh, on your life and career. It's my absolute pleasure. I think it's it must be nearly ten years since we first worked on that. Short film of yours, Shotgun. More than 10 years. More than 10 years. 2007. Gosh, time flies. It certainly does. <laughs> uh, you know I end all of my conversations with the same question. The question is, what makes you silly? Oh, I, 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 family make me silly. Yeah. You know, my nieces and nephews, because I think I'm just really a big kid at heart, but I can get very silly with them. My sister... My sister and I still, whenever we answer the phone, I could call my sister now and put her on speakerphone. Without doubt, she'd answer it and go, face of snot? <laughs> or, have you got snot on your face? Which is, that's, that's just from Drop Dead Fred that we loved growing up. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, family make me silly because they make me smile and that's a good thing. And that's a silly sentimental thing to end on. Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks, bud.